part of this working manuscript that I'm working on called Wonder. Um, and then a surprise poem at the end. So I'll just So the first one's called No Email. 9 p.m. and a dog barks to be let outside. Later, other waiting animals move things along. 24 hours to a day, and each hour passes with the same urgent access to the mundane. With no email, one communicates distance in oceans, bedrooms, corridors, quietness in a book, wellness in a salad, a light well, a child. I loathe the need for subject lines when language already makes things so literal. You say, who has time for Morse code and the bother of flickering from hill to hill, even missing the valleys? Who has the capacity to imagine what it would be like to be so primitive ever again? My 22nd response to your 22nd email says something about how I'm sorry to hear about your worsening eyesight and the need for spectacles that crush your overall style or slide continually down the bridge of your nose as you jog. It's no wonder that you tend to imagine epic disasters like the end of the world as a series of tiny, violent earthquakes. Before email, there was fire and water and earth, and the wind was so strong, we'd get by just fine, blowing letters to each other day and night. Uh, okay, so this next one's a little bit longer. Uh, it's called 12 Forecasts, and it's uh, sort of like a spoof on, uh, on horoscopes, writing horoscopes. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like horoscopes for artists. Or like 12 Forecasts. As Pluto moves into its ninth orbit around the sun, creative spirits are high. Keep impulses in check by remaining steadfast in your search for a more elegant solution, however understated. True progress is often meditative rather than prolific. Potential avenues for research may include lounge furniture, <laughs> garden design, bus shelters. Note the importance of exterior, interior, and spiritual structures. Take great care in the kinds of shelters you build. Two, now through next Friday, your perpetual struggle for recognition drives you to all-time lows. A conversation you have with an old friend will remind you of why you do what you do and refresh your creative direction. Beware of self-doubt, but be comfortable using ultramarine blue, at least until Neptune completes its rotation on the 12th of February. Three, resourcefulness is the name of the game this month, Virgo. Limit your writing surfaces to scraps of paper, receipts, prescriptions, used bus tickets. Learning to be frugal opens up new possibilities for economy in your writing. Do more with less. Think of William Carlos Williams, who managed to fix broken arms while also giving people something to read in the waiting room. Thursday shapes up to be all about process. You might spill coffee on a stranger, drop your phone in the bath, or drive away with an important package on the hood of your car. Sometimes there's nothing left to do but paint looping, lopsided watercolor O's on the wrong kind of paper and occasionally rest your head on the table to sigh. But try embracing disheveled hair and turn it into something that appears intentional. Be at peace with the simple gesture of placing your waterlogged phone in a bag of rice, doing so without expectations. Five, recall that December studio visit where a courier tried to convince you that her job was really serious. Reading was a practice, she said. Attending artist talks was a practice. Talking to people on the phone, going for drinks, all part of a professional practice. 
You may have been frightened at first by the adultness of the idea, preferring to stay home on Friday nights to watch girls without calling it anything at all. The approaching solar eclipse marks a transition in your thinking, allowing you to reframe your daily idiosyncrasies to consider them vital organs. So take new pleasure in the practice of sending lengthy emails to your friends without any punctuation, or paying $2.75 a day for the luxury of writing in a loud cafe rather than in your living room. If staying in your pajamas is important to you, at least try to consider it a practice and do it every day. <laughs> Consistency is key. W.G. Siebold was famous for wandering and for making no point at all. Embrace the ambiguity of fact and fiction this month as Saturn's rings drift an eighth of a degree. A meandering spirit enhances your periphery senses, and in addition to feeling suddenly inclined to stroke the backs of passing dogs, you may notice that your pockets are increasingly burdened by the weight of peculiar stones and rounded shards of sea glass. Consider it research. The day's productivity can be weighed in the things that you find, as well as the histories that you invent for them. Transiting Taurus manifests as a blank page this Monday, leaving you listless and disillusioned. Rather than force it, wait for inspiration to arrive and the dust slowly collecting on your pen. If you look very closely for a week or more, you will become a better reader of Proust. Liken your talents to a, tiny, a million tiny particles and have faith that their expressions will soon fall into place. Hold in your mind the highest image of romance, of Central Park in July and those elderly couples dancing tango at sunset. This Sunday, spontaneity rules. Take a risk and trust your own brave public gestures. When you forget the choreography, learn to improvise. There are so many provincial styles out there. Who will know the difference? <laughs> As Leo rises over the eastern horizon, the studio becomes a wild, wild west. Throw caution to the wind. Let a charcoal line be your cattle path. Linseed oil your desert moonlight. Cast off your painting smock and let down your hair. Nearing the end of March, Venus will deliver a deserving reward for your reckless abandon. The stars realign this week, bringing misunderstanding for Gemini. Rather than seek clarity, you might consider embracing abstraction in order to make meaning where there is none. Insight often comes from eavesdropping on foreign languages. It is said that pumpernickel got its name the day Napoleon rejected Westphalian rye, saying it was suitable only for his horse, say du pain pour Nicole. <laughs> Meanwhile, an unpretentious German baker heard a curious sound, and a new word was born. 11. Attention comes in abundance this month. There's a boy in the bookstore who spies on you relentlessly through the shelves, as you browse the used poetry section. True story. <laughs> and another one who winks when you ask for a lemon poppy seed scone. Wednesday confirms the coolness of your intellectual charm when you're complimented by an admirer with a PhD on your off-the-cuff application of Deleuze and the Pink Panther, who imitates nothing, paints the world pink on pink. Be wary of these distractions, lest you miss your true love on the street. Also note that it can be harder to make art when you share a bed. 12. Fear not meta-narrative, for it is on your side. Between now and next Thursday, work on crafting a detailed description of the view from your window. Consider the implications of the landscape, the characters that populate its alleyways, and the context for their quiet movements. 
Piece by piece, the narrative swells like fingers that have been out in the cold. The details of the window now force you to consider your own sensation of numbness and, later, the glorious return of touch. Okay, on to Stevie Wonder poems. <laughs> There's a really long-winded story about how I started writing about Stevie Wonder, um, because I actually don't know that much about Stevie Wonder, but I just like him like everybody else. <laughs> um, but basically, it was sort of a, a combination of things that came together. One was um, I was in a creative writing class last winter, um, and one of the assignments was to wear a lot of clothes and look at so that you were overdressed and too hot and to look at uh, a reproduction of an object. And the other one was to underdress, wear not enough clothes in a very clo a cold place, and uh, look at an object itself. Um, so I started writing these poems about um, plant sentience because, <laughs> um, because I, uh, my object was a, a, like a potted pony palm, the small palm tree, um, and I brought that um, into the bath with me, and then uh, a really hot bath, and then I brought it. I brought a photograph of it outside into the into the park, and sat on a cold park bench in the middle of the winter in my pajamas. And I wrote this poem, and starting to think about um, plant sentience and this kind of like pseudo science behind um, plant study. Uh, and about the same time, I was gifted um, a vinyl LP of Stevie Wonder's Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. Um, which he did the soundtrack for, that's like a great movie in general about um, sort of like, it's all time-lapse photography. Um, and I uh, started thinking about his life and how my life could intersect with his and uh, how I could write this, how the combination of those two things could become a kind of like fictional biography of two people. Uh, so there's a couple of poems, I think I'll read four or five from that. Um, Here's the first one, it's called Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. It begins with the way my skin sticks to itself behind the knee as I lie folded in a shallow bath and that curious gray mold over the roots where the fruit flies seem to land. The slope of my ear and your sagging leaves, I fear you may be mine. Part two is a lesson in neighborly exposure as you tell me about the exhibitionist in the apartment across the alleyway and her wild homemade jungle of mother-in-law's tongues. We discuss the benefits of being tended to in the nude as she glides around, leading with each hip, frying eggs and mouthing things like, have some water and let's dance so faithfully each morning between nine and 11, only pausing to press skip on the CD player. What follows is a kind of codependent therapy. I feel a deep prehistoric connection to you. You grow taller each time I turn my back to make toast, stretching out in the golden half-light that is obsolete exactly twice a day, and you scorn me quietly as I, as I slouch for hours in front of a glowing computer screen, the kind of light that is the opposite of rainbow sunlight, the kind we do not need. Your progress makes me bolder. I take a nap, though there's work to be done. I tell my boss to go to hell. I learn to sing with vibrato the day I find you in a sorry mound your soil spilled like the ruins of Sutra. Act three is a comedy of daily proportions, partnering cool green composure and deadpan wit with desperately bad jokes and bad hair days. But I don't mind. You're a pony palm and I'm your phony pony palm. We are Gertrude and Basket. 
Who's to know whether our exchanges are improvised or staged, aside from the perspiration in my veins? You wait and wait and wait as I try on funny hats, leaning on one hip. Are you done yet? A sudden change in sonography hints at the passing of time. You are transported into the wind and the rain and the throats of ladybugs. I think of you often, an old friend, playing records over birdsong and saxophone. How I tell you stories about the tropics and your cousins, the fan palm, Venus flytrap, ananas. Just think of those white caps and that smooth white sand. The more you hold these images in your mind, the more they will begin to feel familiar. The final chapter is addressed to the secret life of plants and is a bit like a confession under the cover of an epilogue. How many have there been? How much love did you receive? Be still, use gravity like a diving board. Your life began with a thunderclap and ended with quiet. I'm so moved by the secretness of your photosynthesis. Okay, this one's called Fingertips. Excellent hot toddies. <laughs> Fingertips. Um, on the phone, I see you lifting tiny weights, rap-tap-tapping the glacier tabletop with the same fingertips that push loose hair behind each ear, smoothing metallic vibrations to make visible whatever audible bell might be thrown from a hilltop or a fast-moving car. Those piano lesson push-ups have made a mover out of you, a mover and a shaker, loose change, dresser, drawers, hollering up and down stairwells and three-story walk-ups. Made you cut your nails real short, short and keep them that way. But the fingertips that push along your difficult person remind you of touch, what it's like to be pulled indoors by a lady, rain, and the feeling of terry cloth, gravel, velour, or grit at the bottom of the sink. Our lives sing out, move seductively through foreign language alphabets, Clap, clap, clapping around a turntable, weighted by a penny to make it go, like a finger with a heavy ring. Gold is so unromantic. We point any which way, twisting like a weather vane, pouring out quotidian tears, and the shortest route to not the blues. Talking book. People at school call me a talking book the opposite of a curveball, plain as Jane and smart as smack lip gloss. Who knew it could be borrowed so many times and still taste like the taste of watermelon? I ramble on about messy things, what it's like to be left behind or have your life spill out like a runny egg, until the quietness of athletic socks pad like tabby cats down napping maroon library aisles, up the elevator, seventh floor, and still all I can hear is music. Uncle Ray, like a tuning fork, sending me reverberating into the VWXYZs like a wild macaroni to find out the truth about books and the sounds that they make. Linen spines stacked like the strings of a guitar, gone encyclopedic, organizing vowels, loose phonemes, plunk, desire, pinching, pinching eardrums, inner rhythm, thud, 10, 20, 50 pages at a time, clunk, clunk, spirit animal tossing the adjuncts out, I'll tell you anything. I'll tell you anything you want. Other chapters write themselves. Um, Part-time lover. 
this one's designed kind of like a multiple choice questionnaire, but you can't tell that, so. And I don't know how to deliver that. <laughs> Part-time lover awkwardly carrying glasses of water from the kitchen to the bed. Yawning life forms, nocturnal hourly wage, mon monogamous shelter, promiscuous felt hat. Meet me at the intersection, north-south subway line, how we'd rather be walking. Osmic navigation, touch of rain, pajama phone, next best dressed angel. Sharing an umbrella that you prefer the indoors. Are you winking or blinking? Full-time mother, part-time poet, part-time lover, part-time critic. The new girl will cover my shift, so there's time to be bored. Your silhouette on a motorcycle, phone numbers, soft waves, Himalayan pink rock salt. What's your angle anyways? Give me the energy of a fiery thing, sloppy anarchist, makeshift industrialist. Who will know it when we've reinvented the casual labor of the laundromat? It's Red Now, um, which is Stevie Wonder backwards, which is the name of one of his albums. I don't know why. <laughs> but interesting, right? Okay. Each morning I put on my running shoes and step out into the world down marble steps flanked by rhododendrons, full of bush tits talking loudly to each other like two singing, swelling breasts. Down the street, a white-haired man dressed in black walks barefoot down the sidewalk nodding to an invisible friend in a parked car, while a woman with a very thin nose pushes a walker, holding her mouth wide open like a butterfly net. To practice, I place my history at the far end of a long flute and blow into it all wrong and very straightly with the embarrassing literalness of a party horn, allowing the blocked air to carry itself back into my tightening chest like a gentle musical resuscitation this choreography claims a kind of basic muscular resistance, but eventually evolve, evolves into a daily practice of breathing through the heels or leading with the backs of the knees. Trust becomes increasingly necessary for evolution. In voice class, we practice something called the dark cloud, exhaling loudly to exude an evil milky breath. I imagine being born before the cafe and the parked car and the butterfly net, moving backwards up the birth canal, stomach, lungs, lips, and exhaled into the morning mist like a fine-toothed cloud, a wish that grows into a stark, dark cloud. Mother slept with you once, and now I exist when she exhales, but that's just what it is to relax in a blind shape. Okay, one more Stevie Wonder poem. It's called Stevie Wondering, inspired by um, this line. And you were like, oh, you know, Lil Wayne has that line. Um, it's like, I don't know, maybe some of you know it. I don't want to judge a book by the cover. Sometimes I Stevie Wonder about her or something. Okay. <laughs> Stevie Wondering. With $10 in my back pocket, I run into the street like a teenage phone call, bubbling and brave with new age wisdom. Is she with it if I'm with it? No comment on the weather change, the lightning that yesterday made you feel so alive and connected you to an impossible outer shell, its violet electricity. Raise your hand to show that you already know the openness of an e-chord 
and the magic that works its mention between sets. Tuesday night, two for one. Motown had a way of raising you, taught you to see through the soles of your feet and feel through the cultural invention of black and white keys. So when we open shop early, all the kids hustle in, balancing our life and work so easily on bicycles forever clicking echolocation. How we learn to work, rework, retrieve, retreat, unfold, compact, make new, entrust, make plain, adapt, adopt, re-gift. Wonder, is it real? Wonder, is this the final shape of the universe? Wonder, is bleach the right thing for sun-kissed hair? Wonder, is there a rhythm to this rhythm jam? Wonder if meaning can be made conveniently in a coffee pot. Wonder if jazz can really make a plant grow tall. Wonder if only kittens might still have nine lives. Wonder if there's a madness to collaboration. Wonder if she'll still love me if I leave in the end. Wonder is time impressed in the upper neck. Wonder is profit possible from organic lemonade. Wonder is there a limit to how much music one can stand. Wonder if a cloudy day makes for good daylight insight. Wonder if my influences are beginning to get the best of me. Wonder if a person can really exist before their time. Wonder if there's such a thing as improvisation. Wonder if it's true that a perennial will come back. Wonder if I've left my chores too late in the afternoon. Wonder why she never called like she promised she would. Wonder, does history recoil when it's been played? Wonder whether action is even possible now. Wonder if in your dreams you find keyboards in alleyways or if your birthday falls on a Saturday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I have one more. Um, and this one's dedicated to Steph and Emma. Um, and a few others would probably qualify. It's called East Georgia's Shameless Loiterers. <laughs> Georgia's shameless loiterers are a type of 20-somethings who made it through art school in one breath, hardly blinking, just talking to friends the whole time in one long, outrageous, laughing conversation, smoking and never noticing its effect on their lungs, resilient like cattle, grazing on Chinatown's crushed coconut buns over the flat terrain that requires no effort to move along. And even when it's raining, there are awnings for everyone, so long as they are not too tall, and so they stay there, leaning limply against a gutter pipe beside the daikon and winter melons with a smug exhilaration. And every day, though it rains and rains, they are lucky with shelter, never needing an umbrella, arriving mostly dry, and the dampness makes them more friendly and robust. They hug wetly at art openings, offering $4 wine, lips stained red, flaky from dehydration and forgetting to carry chapstick, lipstick on the glass from a previous day, catching up about the poems they've been writing, poems about haircuts and other isolated happenings, everybody going about their days, rising late, then coffee, toast, caring for teeth, wandering, shift work, a change of shirt, before it's back to East Georgia, finally together again, reporting newly of their 12-hour separation, feeding each other <laughs> jokes and confessions disguised as jokes the half-formed song she wrote at the Astoria after a brief moment of heartbreak that left her smoking on a curb and biking home alone for the first time in a while, waking up with a cat pawing at her cheek, 
claws safely away like an owl, staring deeply into her eyes with an intensity that must be love? Or is it only reliance? Aren't those often the same thing? She feeds the cat sleepily as he wraps tightly around her legs in figure eights or infinity signs. You decide, is this love? Is this love? And then she's out the door. Goodbye, see you tonight, she says, and walks briskly down the street, down another street, five more blocks, and then she's there again with all her friends on East Georgia, waving her in here and also here and also here so casually because they are close. And because she hangs around each day, she is offered a work desk at the back of the gallery. And she treats it like a real job because it is real, though it has always been unclear on whether a real job needs to be a paid job. And she writes tirelessly all day like everybody else. And when they call it quits at 5 p.m., she calls it quits too. And they go outside together for a smoke, a smoke that turns into a drink, a drink that turns into some drinks. And when it starts to rain again, they're all outside, laughing under an awning again. In the damp, is this love? After the store's shutters, is this love? Have all closed. That's it. Thank you. from a, a study for an essay I'm working on. It's really, really uh, piecemeal at the moment, hence the study. But uh, yeah, maybe something will come of it. This Tabla Raza, Volume 2, Part 1. The Bardo goes like this. First, you experience the constituent collapse of all the elements of your corpus. Earth collapses into water. Water kindles into fire. Fire evaporates into air. And at that last and most invisible element dissolves one is confronted by the pure white light of consciousness, which is said to be the direct experience of one's fundamental nature without any of the shadows that sense and self produce. All that is necessary to transcend the cycle of death and rebirth is to recognize this as the projection of your own mind, and you will dissolve into the white ether. If the dying soul fails to perceive the luminosity uh, for what it is, they pass for several days into something like a deep and dreamless sleep. Upon waking, the deceased will feel as if she has entered a new reality. She will encounter a tangle of imagery from her life, and her senses will be incredibly acute. She will be able to hear and see people crowded around her. She will see her corpse. She will be able to hear and see people, her family, but no one will see her. Now she will experience the composite emotional states of her living days as first peaceful and then terrifying life forms. A pervasive and resplendent blue light takes over the whole of the space. This is consciousness itself, represented as the deity Buddha Verochena. She will then meet the 48 peaceful deities. They cannot hurt her, for she is dead. They are the presence of her own innate wisdom, the sharpness and power of her mind, but they are menacing and, com uh, and appear completely real. After that, she will meet the 52 wrathful deities, and they are terrifying. And after eight days, her body will be cremated by the Tibetans, 
to help her see that there is no returning to this site, to this family, to that body. It helps her loved ones let go of their attachments so that she may move on and find a favorable rebirth. Meanwhile, on her circuit, the 48 peaceful deities and the 52 wrathful ones are merging into the Lord of Death. Assuming she fails to perceive this as just the shadow play of her own consciousness, she will suddenly find herself able to traverse space completely, to pass through solid objects, travel anywhere in the world, and walk through the habits of her thinking as if they were great landscapes. She will be uh, chased across these plains by animals and cruel little beings. And finally, exhausted, she will begin to look for a rebirth to bring an end to the sufferings of the bardo. The notion of her former body becomes very faint and the shape of her new body is becoming clear. She is ushered on to choose a good birth, hopefully in the human realm, where she will once again have the opportunity to dissolve out of the cyclical nature of this existence. Her journey, the Tibetans believe, will be roughly seven weeks, about 49 days. Since the dead are very susceptible to auditory message, a priest has been reading to her from the Bardo Todal throughout the duration of her pilgrimage. Known in the West as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it was written in the 8th century by Padmasambhava, who allegedly brought Buddhism to the cultures of the Himalayas. Part 2. Creation Myth. There is a Greek word, kalipsin, and it means to cover, to hide. In the Greek pantheon, Calypso is the goddess of the hidden, of concealment. Before he starts his voyage back to Ithaca, it's on her island that Odysseus finds himself trapped and obscured. So Calypsin, to cover. What happens if we remove the covering? The Greek prefix apo, meaning to take away. So apo Calypsin. When Latin scholars translated the Greek for the Vulgate Bible, they translated this word as removing the cover. Velum in Latin means the veil, the cover, thus revelare, to reveal, to lift the veil. Apocalypse and revelation mean the same thing. Part 3. Socrates spends the day of his state-ordered suicide in a prison cell with his buddies. He's been condemned to death for allegedly corrupting the youth of, Ash of Athens charges which he mockingly denies, asserting the opposite, that he was only ever the servant to their moral enrichment. His cadre are around to see their teacher for the last time. They weep in the prison cell, confused, furious, already mourning this brave and loving soul that dedicated himself, sandal and strap, to hauling them like sunken ships out of the depths of moral and intellectual blackness and into the sunshine of pure reason. Socrates is cheerful, He's not afraid to die because he's logically convinced the soul is immortal. An idea that migrated into ancient Greek philosophy from parts east, uh, east by the way. Oh, a little wine break here. <laughs> Here's one of the old man's three positions. Things in this world which appear to be equal are always deficient in that quality. Two seeming equivalents are not the same as equality, as the equal itself. When we notice these deficiencies, it helps us to recollect that perfect equivalency, the form of the equal. Since this knowledge of an ideal cannot possibly come from sense perce uh, perception, we must have acquired it before we took on the faculties of sense. 
So our souls have always existed, Socrates reasoned. Right before he passes, Socrates' final request is for Credo to sacrifice a rooster to the divine healer Asclepius, an ancient Greek custom for someone who was recovering from an illness. Part 4. Jake the Barber's Soul Migration and How I Embezzled $2,000 from My First Job. When you get home tonight, count 49 days backwards from your birthday and do a brief internet search for celebrity deaths on that corresponding day. Uh, I'd actually recommend doing this with someone who loves you and knows you well, because you might be inclined to embellish. And, uh, so you might pick a celebrity that, uh, that does the honest, and they'll probably set you right with uh, someone a bit more your size. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, 49 days. So for me, it was March 10th, 1984. So January 23rd, 22nd. 1984. <clears throat> Let's see. My most interesting candidate was a man named John Factor, alias Jake the Barber, a gangster associated with the Chicago Mafia who was a very successful and ambitious con man. Factor was born Iakov Faktorowicz and spent his young days in Poland before moving to Britain and then the States. His half-brother was Max Factor of the cosmetics fame. I didn't know that was a person. It just sounded like a really nice brand. Uh, and like his brother, Iakov was trained to be a barber, hence the nickname. He ran a stock scam that won him $8 million, defrauding even some English royalty. He beat feet to the States and got set up with Chicago gangsters, all the while dodging the looming extradition that was coming. He lived a long life, died in California, a rich man. Uh, as a benefactor to the city, and the mayor was at his funeral, incidentally. Big time gangster. Let's see. Oh yeah, so I guess my case is that uh, if he died on January 22nd, 1984 in LA, he crossed the plains of the Bardo in misery, and he migrated to a trailer in the outskirts of Ottawa to give it another go. And here we are. When I was 16 years old, I got a job working the night shift at a sassy pizza place next to the Husky gas station in my hometown. My employer was a uh, menacing ex-football player with, a perm with permanently bloodshot eyes who owned the cowboy bar downtown in this pizza shack with the oil stains and the tile muck and the holes kicked into the gyp rock and mice and unbecoming food practices and drunk delivery drivers and a general air of angry, lonesome, working class malaise. Uh, let's call this owner D. Dee was an intimidating presence. It looked to me like he was smoldering from the inside and not in a uh, burning passion, Bruce Springsteen kind of way, but like an old barbecue that's been left on. Uh, a kind of down on his luck demon. He scared the fuck out of me. <laughs> Wrathful man. Uh, luckily, Dee was lazy and a hands-off boss unless uh, uh, it was a threatening call about the pizzas he ordered to the club not arriving promptly. I think I saw him three times in the three years I worked there, but his presence was keenly felt. At 1 a.m., my manager would punch out, and I'd be left there alone to run the restaurant, take any late-night orders, and handle the inevitable rush between 2 and 3 a.m. when the bars let out. And I started to notice a trend. Every so often, and always around quarter to one, D would call from the cowboy bar and ask to speak to A, the manager. Without a word, A would take the beige phone with the kink cord that you could stretch to like 20 feet, and walk to the cash register and start flipping through the receipts. She'd passively read out some of the prices and then she'd hang up, punch in some numbers, print new paper, staple them to the old ones and put a wad of cash out in the till, or take a wad of cash out of the till, which she would drop into an envelope and take upstairs and put it into the safe in Dee's office. 
Closing the till at the end of the night, I'd go through and notice the receipts she was printing were voids in the exact amount of the original receipts they were stapled to, thus striking that amount off the restaurant's books. Pretty simple. Soon I started doing a few of my own voids, small ones at first. A 1654 here, a 1297. Uh, months went by without a word, and I began to get the sense that, uh, that from the less than cleanly condition of Dee's office that perhaps this man wasn't the meticulous tax detective who was secretly in cahoots with my disciplinarian father to let me persist in this embezzlement scheme until I racked up enough money to be suitable for criminal charges, but rather uh, was more of a take-it-as-it-comes alcoholic cokehead with a latent hoarding complex. Uh, homie wasn't looking at any receipts. I stole a lot of money from that place. I bought a nice five-disc CD changer, a Gibson Epiphone SG. I'd eat all the time. I was 16 years old. I didn't really feel bad about it. The great sin would be getting caught. I can't say I had much guilt. I hadn't shaken the John Factor karma off my back yet. That's it. <laughs>